Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6, please. As you're turning there, have you ever had a moment when you kind of just realize the magnitude of someone or something that just strikes you about this person, either good or bad, and you realize, I'll never be that person the same way again. They've just amazed me, or they've disappointed me, or something's happened, and you're going to change the way you relate to them forever. I'm currently reading through The Hobbit right now, so that will make many of you very happy. I admit I'm completely sucked in. Um, Wishing I could stay awake longer to read it, but I'm falling asleep only for the book to wake me up. But uh, the dwarves are on this incredible journey and they need Bilbo, this hobbit, to accomplish the journey. In the beginning of the story, the dwarves really disdain Bilbo. They're annoyed by him. Yet throughout the story, Bilbo, through his kind of grit, determination, through risk and strategy, and through a good bit of luck, although we talked this morning. We'll say providential blessings. Their view of Bilbo changes. He has strengths they need. He has gifts they need. And it sure helps that he stumbles on a magic ring. And there's a few moments where their esteem of him rises. His character's on display and they value him all the more. And the gospels are like that. The gospels are this These men are writing down what Jesus has done, who he is. Jesus continually reveals himself to the disciples to continually reveal to them who he is, what his character is. But then there are distinctive moments when Jesus attends for us to truly see him for who he is. His character is on complete display and there's no mistaking it. And this morning's text is one of those texts. And the way Mark writes this out for us is that he wants us to see that Jesus is truly the Son of God. The God of the Old Testament has become man. God the Son, Jesus Christ, has become a man, and he is proving it in this event. So Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to the end of the chapter. Now last week, we saw that our good shepherd fed 5,000 15,000 probably people, 5,000 men. He stuck around to dismiss the crowd carefully. And verse 45 picks up. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might even touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it, 
were made well. So Jesus has fed the 5,000, 15,000 probably. He sends away the disciples quickly because the crowd was seeking to make Jesus king. Verse 45 there implies this great deal of urgency. You know, the disciples were not immune to the hysterics of the crowd. Without the disciples around, he can kind of send the crowd away peaceably, averting a groundswell. Remember, they were kind of hoping for this revolutionary activity. And Jesus is ushering in a completely different kingdom than they want him to. It's a kingdom of sacrifice, kingdom of repentance, kingdom of faith in Jesus Christ. And then he's going to display through his own life, self-sacrifice for the good of others. And he'll bring in his kingdom in his way and his time. And so he sent away the disciples. He sent away the crowd. So they went home. And then he went up on a mountain praying alone. That's the context that we're in. We don't know what he was praying for, but we have pretty good guess. He was talking to the Lord, asking the Lord for strength and for grace to continue to be faithful in his call, his mission. But we can also be certain that he was praying for his disciples because every time he prays and we have record of him praying, he's praying for his disciples. And what we want to see right out of the gate is that our Lord Jesus prays for you. He prays for you. Jesus does this often. He likes to get away on mountains. So kudos to those that live here in Colorado Springs. And he's, he gets up there, he's alone with his father and the disciples are separated. And usually when the disciples are separated from Jesus, things tend to go south. It's no mistake, disaster might soon follow. And they always get themselves in a pickle when they're distant from the Lord. But this time, they've simply done what the Lord commanded. The Lord said, go away, go to the other side. And so they do. And they're out rowing. Jesus sent them. Look at verse 45. He made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. And what happened? Well, a storm comes up, another storm. And Jesus is now on the land and the disciples are in the boat at sea and they're making headway. And it says they're making headway painfully which has this great strain, great effort. They're in a bad way to make progress across the Sea of Galilee, which they're very familiar with. These were no novices. And they're just genuinely trying to obey the Lord and get to the other side. They're just doing what the Lord has said and the winds were against them. They were meeting opposition, contrary forces against their obedience to Jesus. This was completely outside of their control. The wind didn't sweep up because of their sinful wills. They didn't invite opposing winds. They're just trying to do what Jesus said. And obeying Jesus' commands was hard. And what's Jesus doing? Well, he's praying. And watching, look at verse 48. And he saw they were making headway painfully. So he's praying, but he's also watching. And I think it's important for us to see that Jesus prays for us. In our, even when we're fighting sin or we've fallen in sin, he prays for us. But also when we are just struggling to obey him and do the simplest commands that he gives. He is praying for us. We don't see him. They don't see Jesus on the mountain, but he's praying. He knows their troubles. He's praying for us and he's praying for them and he's going to help in his time. 
So just get this, this picture of the disciples in a tough spot facing opposition, dire straits through no fault of their own out here on the water and Jesus up here praying, knowing, seeing. Right? Jesus doesn't coddle us. He matures us. He places us in difficulty that we're going to have to grow in grace, increase our endurance and in our strength by his grace and kindness. He's going to deepen our faith in him and our faithfulness through trial, through opposing winds that may not be our fault at all. And this is a great picture. This is what's happening right here. Jesus on the mountain praying and the disciples out on the boat is a great picture of what's happening right now between Christ's first coming and his second coming, that he prays for you, he intercedes for you right now. We spend so much time focused on what Christ has done for, for us in the past, and we should, because it's amazing what he's done for us in the past, right? He left heaven, he did not consider equality with God, the worship of the angels, he did not consider something to hold on to, but he entered our sinful fallen world endure the sufferings and the pains and the trials that we all know and experience. And then he lived a perfect life that he knew we could not live on our own. Never once did he sin. He perfectly obeyed his father in every way, shape and form, healing the sick, raising the dead, restoring the broken, cleansing the unclean, giving sight to the blind. He taught the way of the kingdom of God, a way of repentance and faith. He taught selfless love. And then no greater his love is there than this, that he modeled it when he laid his life down on the cross for us, temporarily separated from his heavenly father so that you and I can know God as father and never fear being separated from our father, buried for three days. And then just as we sang and our, we rejoiced in, then he conquered the grave. He rose again. We focus on what Christ has done so much and we should because it's amazing. He foreknew you, he predestined you, he called you, he represented you in his life. He's now justified you and you're now fully accepted in him because of his work. He brings us to God. We should think on what Jesus has done. But what's he doing right now? The same thing he was doing on this mountain while his disciples were in the storm. He's interceding for you. He's praying for you. He's actively bringing you before the Father. The scriptures teach this, Romans 8, 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who's gonna bring any charge against you and me? It's God who justifies. Who's gonna condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand interceding for us. The reason condemnation doesn't stick to you is because Jesus is interceding for you based on what he has done for you in the past. And he's currently interceding over and over, representing you in the presence of his father, showing the father that he died for us and he's praying for us and the father looks on to Jesus with delight in the work of Jesus Christ. And they together send the spirit and send the aid that we need in their infinite wisdom. This is happening right now in the presence of God the Father. Doesn't it comfort you to know he's praying for you? 
Dane Ortland explains this well. He says, the atonement accomplished our salvation. Intercession is the moment by moment application of that atoning work. In the past, Jesus did what he now talks about. In the present, Jesus talks about what he then did. This is Jesus constantly applying his redemption to our lives. He's not a mechanical savior, but a relational savior, keeping us constantly before the Father in prayer, constantly representing us, constantly interceding for you, So that let's say you're pastoring a church someday and you're on the front row and you're anxious about preaching. It brings you comfort to know he's praying for you. It's just out of the thin air. I don't know where that came from. (laughs) Dane Orland again says, our presence in God's good favor and family will never sputter and die. It will never die like an engine running out of gas. And he anchors that in Hebrews 7 because Jesus always lives to make intercession for you. This should bring you comfort at the deepest level. Whatever struggles you are facing at your deepest level, whatever internal sins you're afraid to confess and get help with, Jesus knows and he's praying for you right now before the Father. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 7, because Jesus continues forever He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So like these disciples, when you feel distant from the Lord, rowing, straining, and contrary winds are against you. This is no indication of Jesus's inactivity or his failure or his lack of faithfulness. He's praying for you. He's applying his work to you. And as we see next, he may just be headed your way. Look at verses 47 and 48. When the evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. We'll jump into a little further in a minute. I love Mark's matter of fact, walking on the sea. Like, no explanation, just do with that what you will. But Jesus has been praying for them. And just like prayer does, it warms your heart towards people. Then he's moving towards his people who are struggling. He's interceding for you. You feel alone in the storm. Jesus is on his way. He knows he's coming. Keep rowing. Stay steadfast. Press on. Jesus is praying for you and he's on his way. He often takes longer than we think he should, but he will not forsake us. So about the fourth watch of the night has arrived. This is roughly nine to 12 hours after Jesus sent them. So the fourth watch is from three to 6 a.m. And he sent them away around 6 p.m. And the Sea of Galilee should take six to eight hours to cross in rough waters, so I'm told. And they've been at it for at least nine. And they've not made it, but maybe halfway, three to four miles, it says in the Gospel of John. And so here comes Jesus, and his method of travel is to deny the natural laws. 
He's just walking on the water three or four miles to get to his disciples. Now, at night in a storm, if you're on a boat and someone comes walking on the water, what are you gonna do? And don't lie. You're gonna freak out like they did. They thought he was a ghost. They cried out. This has in mind the shriek of terror. Like this has in mind, guys, the shriek you never would want anyone to know you let out if you got scared. They screamed like babies. There was genuine terror overwhelming them and rightly so, rightly so. Originally, Jesus was just gonna, it says he was gonna pass by them. Just pass them by. And so Jesus is praying for us, but I wanna see too that he is pursuing us. He's pursuing us. And I want us to understand this in light of what he says, I'm gonna pass them by. Jesus was gonna pass them by. Now, why, Mark, did you bring this up? Why, Jesus, were you just gonna pass them by? Was this like a not care thing? Or I'm just gonna get to the other side and let them come meet me there? Or let them alone, let them figure it out? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. Mark has been laboring over the entirety of this book to prove the deity of Jesus, that he is truly the son of God. And you remember when the Lord calmed the first storm in the sea in chapter four, the disciples overflow with this question, who is this man? Who is this man that the wind and the sea obey him? And here again, Mark is telling us who Jesus is, not by writing out the words, but by showing us what he did. So he's showing us who Jesus is. Jesus isn't passing by because he doesn't care or he's content to leave him alone. Mark's calling on some rich Old Testament imagery that I think it's worth to go look at. So turn in your Bibles to Exodus 33, if you can, for a minute. Only, only God walks on water, especially in the Old Testament. The sea was a terrifying place. No one was confident at sea. And yet this, the scriptures say things in Isaiah 43, 16, the Lord alone can make his way upon the sea. Only God walks on water. And so we see here, I think Mark's pointing out that Jesus is truly God, but then he says, and he was going to pass them by. What's this pass them by thing all about? Well, look in Exodus 33. Moses is interceding for the people of God here. He's telling God, Yahweh, look, if your presence doesn't go with us, please don't send us, God. We don't want to go into the promised land without you. Without you, what, who are we? And what, what significance is there if we go into the promised land without you? That's a great question. And look at what God says to Moses in verse 17. He says, this very thing that you've spoken, I will do. For you found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory, what? Passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face 
shall not be hidden. Then Moses had to go and rewrite the Ten Commandments that he destroyed, bring them back to the Lord. And look at verses thir chapter 34, verse 6 here. The Lord descended, verse 5, sorry. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord, proclaiming the name of the Lord, his character, who he is. In verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the father on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped and worshiped. God's distinct self-revelation occurred when he passed by Moses. And the things that he revealed to him in his name were that God is a merciful, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, keeping his covenant faithfulness to a thousand generations, steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, not clearing the guilty by no means. Passing by is a symbol, a consistent theme in the te Old Testament where Jesus passes by and reveals his glory. God reveals his glory to people. Do you remember Elijah being placed in a cave in 1 Kings 19? Remember Elijah wanted to hear from the Lord. God told him, go on, stand before the mountain of the Lord and the Lord passed by. And the first was a strong wind. Did he sense the Lord in the strong wind? No. Then an earthquake, then fire. And all of this, it says, was when the Lord passed by and then finally a soft whisper. The Lord spoke to Elijah as he was passing by him. Turn in your Bibles to Job, Job chapter nine. The kids learned about Job in Sunday school this morning. So kids, you gotta tell your parents what you learned, okay? I kudos to any Sunday school teacher that has to teach kids the book of Job. Praise be to God for you all. Job chapter nine, it's in the middle, to the left. So if you open your Bible to Psalm or so, Psalms, the book of Psalms and go left, you're gonna hit Job. Job's in a tight spot. He's in a very rough place. Much affliction has come upon him, not by his own doing. And Job's wrestling of concerns about how can I be right with God? How can a man truly be in right position or a right relationship with God. And then he breaks out in Job chapter nine with these descriptions of the grandeur of God. And look at Job chapter nine, verse eight. He, this is God, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Trampled the waves of the sea. This is the God who can walk upon the waves of the sea. Verse nine, who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. When we have this self-expression of God, it's often in this language of passing by. We can't see him face to face and live. We can't behold his glory completely and live. So he reveals himself to us as he passes 
by. Moses, Elijah, and Job all have had passed by moments where they became, they got to know God better. God revealed his character to them. The God of Israel, the creator of the ends of the earth. This God then in the book of Mark has now become man. He's walking on water and he intends to pass them by. Mark is intentionally pointing out that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. He has, God the Father has sent the Son, the Son has become man and now lives. The God of all power, all authority, all creation, omnipotent, omnipresent God. This God is now in human flesh walking on water and intended to pass by the disciples. And then look how the story continues. Look at verse 50. They all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Receive courage, it is I. The God-man Christ Jesus is walking on water, he gets into the boat and then when he says, it is I, that is the Greek equivalent to I am. I am is now in flesh, walking on water, and then he got in the boat. If they weren't in the storm, if they weren't rowing and struggling and sweating in the storm, they wouldn't have seen Jesus walking on water. They wouldn't have had the character of God revealed to them powerfully. If they didn't see him as a son of God, they would, not, they would still be stuck in their fears. They would have missed out on the peace of God that will be theirs in the very presence of Jesus. Until they saw Jesus as he truly is, the sinless son of God, they were not going to see him rightly. They would be stuck in their fears. I, I think Mark is powerfully presenting Jesus in this way because he's saying you have to know Jesus rightly. The son of the living God who has power over all things, the gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. But it's his presence that makes all the difference in the world. And his presence is that you see him as he truly is. The God of Israel who has become man. And so Jesus is prayed for the disciples and he pursues the disciples. He reveals himself to them as the true God, the one God of Israel that has now become man. And now he comes to save his people from their sin. And he was pursuing them even as he was passing them by. And then what we see is when we enter into the presence of, of Jesus, excuse me, we find peace. Peace comes in the presence of Jesus. Being with Jesus is not just a, a theoretical truth, right? His presence truly transform the way, transforms the way we experience our circumstances. The separation from, the, from Jesus led these disciples into great distress, but then Jesus' arrival brings them peace. But not just peace. Look at verse 51. He got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded. Amazement and marveling. This is the right response to Jesus when he draws near to us. 
blown away by Jesus's capacity to calm the storm. Blown away by Jesus's ability to walk on water. And yet, as we see here in verse 52, they didn't understand their hearts were still hardened. They hadn't learned the lesson from the bread, Mark says, assuming we'll know exactly what that lesson is. That Jesus has power over all. He's the great shepherd. He can provide for their every need. They didn't understand it. I mean, failure to know and understand our Lord will miss out on, lead us to miss out on peace in tumultuous, difficult seasons of life, won't it? When the Lord removes a threat, even if our hearts are hard, we'll miss out on the beauty of the presence of Jesus Christ, even if he brings peace. In our day, right now, I'm thankful for this. There's an obsession with the, the nearness of Jesus, his imminence. People are drawing attention to the personal, relational nature of Jesus Christ. And that's a good thing. This is beautiful. I want more of that. But I want people to see, though, that Jesus has, he has become the savior of all who come to him in faith. I, I think Jesus is approachable, personal. I want people to relate to him personally. But there's, the reason that's amazing is because of his transcendence. It's because of his incredible power and deity that he is truly God. When you recognize the greatness of God in Jesus, the human form, Jesus himself, his eminence then is all the more powerful and all the more valuable. Jesus has revealed himself gloriously to the disciples, the great I am, he called himself. He can trample on the seas. He's equal to Yahweh of the Old Testament. He's the promise keeping God the Israelites have been longing for. He's the God in whom is their only hope for salvation. And apart from him is eternal death. And when you begin to see Jesus in that light, then his nearness to you becomes so much sweeter. So much sweeter. I, I'm amazed by great things, right? If I brought in an, if you're, let me think how to best say this. I'm not amazed by an earthworm. Like I wouldn't go to the zoo to see an earthworm, right? No power, no threat, no display of authority or command, not really unique. They come out when it rains, uh, at least in Kentucky. I don't know about here. I am amazed by the nearness of a grizzly bear, right? One with this incredible strength and power who creates deep fear and respect no matter the context. Like even behind the glass at the zoo, you're like, man, I'm, I'm hoping that holds. I'm hoping he doesn't have a change of heart and wants to come through this or over this because I kind of feel like he could, right? Like I think that every time I see them, I'm amazed at their great power. And if we try to flatten out Jesus to just a mere man doing great things and he loves you, which is true, not a mere man, but he loves you. It's not amazing that he would come near to you. What's amazing is that his grandeur, his strength, his power, his authority in himself, that he is the one true God became man. 
and then gets into the boat with us. And then tells us things like verse 50. Take heart, it's I. Don't, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. If he doesn't have control over the circumstances, he has no right to tell you not to be afraid. But if he's the God of all glory, he has every right to say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. See your circumstances rightly. Don't fear Jesus as a ghost. He's not a ghost. And John, we know at this point that they were so glad to receive him into the boat. And for whatever reason, you know, Mark was influenced by Peter in his writing. This is where Peter walks on water to Jesus. For whatever reason, Mark doesn't include it. But they begin to see Jesus rightly. And they, then the command from Jesus, don't be afraid, begins to make sense. The, the proper fear of Jesus is not one of shrieking terror. It's one of welcoming reverence, inviting him into the boat, one that draws you to him, not from him. Jesus telling them to fear not is not a command to forego all fear. We know in scripture we're called to fear the Lord. Both New Testament and Old Testament alike have clear commands to fear the Lord rightly. But it's a fear that draws you in. It's a fear that makes you realize Jesus is my only hope. It's his presence I need. I fear, I revere him in a way that draws me to him because there's nothing outside of him worthwhile. And when we come in, his presence brings peace. We fear not because we're in his presence. So he commands, fear not, do not be afraid. And he joins them in the boat. I mean, it, like we said, if... If he has no control over the storm, then he's welcome to get in the boat. And it doesn't matter much. But because Jesus is the transcendent God of Israel, who through whom all things that came into being have come into being through Jesus, because he gets into the boat, that transforms this troubling and terrifying moment. Jesus' presence often transforms troubling and terrifying moments that awaken us to his character and his glory and strengthen us to have faith in him. So don't, don't forget that he, he gets into the boat with you as he reveals himself to you. And then he brings peace. He calms the storm. And then in John, we know that they were immediately at the store, shore they ended up in Gennesaret, which is southwest of they were, where they were originally headed. Now, I think you can make a point here that when Jesus commands you fear not in the midst of your trials and your woes, and he gets into the boat with you and you find peace because the God of all creation is sitting there with you, sometimes you end up where you weren't initially headed. And that's okay if you're with Jesus. Sometimes the storms don't cease. Sometimes the Lord is still up on the mountain praying. Sometimes he's still on his way to you before you feel the peace of his presence. But you know, you know either way his peace is yours in him. When you realize who he is and you find his presence to bring your peace, then the circumstances come, the circumstances go, but the presence of Jesus Christ brings you peace. And then look what we get at the end of this 
chapter, kind of a summary report from Mark. When they had crossed over, this is verse 53 to the end, they, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. I, I think it's funny. I would have just been like, Jesus, look, can you just make the boat stay there? Don't make us moor to the shore. You can control the storm, you know, but Jesus likes for us to do the mundane things in a way that honors him. Sorry, it's a rabbit trail. Verse 54, and when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch just the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is that moment where the character of Jesus Christ should have transformed anyone and everyone's view of him because of his actions here. So people, Jesus gets on shore and people are just running around grabbing the sick, bringing them to Jesus. Just, just bringing them to him. And wherever, wherever they heard he was, they didn't care where he was. Wherever he was, they were going there with the sick. It's like, where are we going? To Jesus. Well, that's not really a where, that's a who. I know, but that's your only hope, right? Like we're just gonna get you to Jesus. In verse 56, restates this emphasizing wherever, wherever. And Mark is focusing on the presence of Jesus doing marvelous deeds in a summary way. He's not giving us teaching from Jesus or dialogue, no words from Christ at all, just Jesus among the masses, full of compassion, full of power, bringing his amazing peace, not even through his touch, through people touching just the fringes, just the fringes of his garment. Mark wants us to see the greatness of Jesus, this incredible power. He prays for you, he passes by you as he pursues you. He's revealing his glory to you, he can give you peace. The mere fringe of his garment can do this. What do you wrestle with that you need Jesus' presence to deal with? I promise he can manage it. The fringes of his garment were healing people. The fringes of his garment. Just look at the fringe of your best clothes that you may have worn this morning. Mine picked up some dust somewhere, but like... You're in a house and you're on clean roads and you haven't been at a boat in a storm. And Jesus is walking around in this condition. And people are coming and just the fringes of his garment. And again, I think Mark's emphasis here is for you to see the greatness of Jesus Christ and know exactly whose presence you're entering into by using this passes by language and by uses this, using this fringes language. We've referenced Job. I want to go back to it. I'm actually reading through it right now in my quiet time. It's just sweet in a hard way. But Job, who was a man acquainted with great grief and trials, in chapter 26, 14, he, he says things like, God stretches out the earth over a void. He hangs the earth on nothing. He holds water in the clouds. They don't burst. They don't burst until the time. He sets the limits for the waters. He divides light and darkness. He rebukes and the heavens tremble. 
They are astounded. By his power, Job says, God can still the seas. By his breath, the heavens were made. Just mere breath. And then in verse 26, 14, Job says, these are but the fringes of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him? Just the mere fringes. Jesus can restore your life with the fringes of his ways. The incredible power on display in creation, holding all things together are mere fringes of God's power. The faintest whisper from him. If this is his great power in his whisper, what should we expect when he thunders his presence? If Jesus can handle the sick with the fringe of his garment, what concerns do you need to bring to him? If you belong to Jesus, he's praying for you. And he knows your struggles. And you may not sense him right now, but he's on his way. He can walk on water. It might be a little longer than you think he should arrive, but he will arrive. You may have to struggle for, for, against a storm, but he knows what you need. And in his presence, you will find peace when you see him as he truly is. Jesus, the great I am. The God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And what we see and know in him are the fringes, the fringes of his greatness. So he's praying for us right now. Let's pray together and then we'll turn and sing about our glorious God. Lord Jesus, thank you for making yourself known to us. Thank you that by your mere fringes, Lord, we can be fully restored, completely made new. Thank you that by your abundant mercy and kindness, you draw near to us in the midst of storms. That you pursue us in the midst of our trials, even trials that we didn't even bring upon ourselves, Lord. Thank you that you're maturing us, you're working in us to create that which is pleasing in your eyes. And we thank you, Lord, that when we don't know what to pray and that when we're struggling, that you are praying, that you always live to make intercession for us and that the work you've done in the past is ours now in the present and that you're continually applying that to us. Lord Jesus, we pray you would get in into the boats, whatever these struggles are that our church is facing, that each individual here is wrestling with. Lord, get into that with them. Make your presence known. Make your power known. And may they, may they know, and may I know, the full and complete peace of your presence. We ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.